at the parent meeting, the title of what I talk about is Aztec Baseball 101, a character-based program. I want them to know just boldly in a title that that's what we stand for, that I am all about building character and having a standards-driven program and building young men. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to baseballcloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I welcome David Webb, the head coach at Corona Del Sol High School in Tempe, Arizona. David has been the head coach at Corona since 2006, and he has a rich background in baseball, having played at Phoenix Camelback High School for three years, playing for his father, Charlie, and then going on to play at Scottsdale Community College. He finished his degree at Grand Canyon University and also has his master's from Arizona State University. On the show, David shares his vast knowledge of focusing on the mental game. We also talk about building up players to get in touch with who they are, building a team culture of having strong character, and he gives us his advice on how to go about talks on playing time. You're going to love this one with David Webb. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Greatly appreciate it. Definitely. Well, I know that a few of of our friends, Jeff Sherman and Steve Roof, decided to text me a couple of weeks ago and say, hey, you've got to get David Webb on the show. And I said, I'm not familiar with David. And they just gave me a whole huge rundown of of how good of a coach you are and how impressive that you were to them in just a really short period of time. So I, I am taking their word for it. And after doing some some research about you, I think you absolutely fit the mold to what we're trying to find for good high school coaches and just good coaches in general. And if you have those guys' recommendation, you know that you are doing the right things. But for our listeners who want <laughs> to get to know you a little bit better, tell us a little bit about you know how you got your start in baseball and why you decided to get into coaching. Well, I think uh, my path, kind of like a lot of guys, started with playing baseball. Obviously, I grew up in a baseball family, part of it. It had to do with my father was a Hall of, Fo- uh, Hall of Fame baseball coach in the Valley here. And he was at, at Camelback High School for around 25 years, had a very successful stint. Unfortunately, he was in the state championship four times and lost all four. So I got to see all of, all of those things go on. But I was in a baseball family. I ended up going to Scottsdale Community College for a couple of years, played at Scottsdale Community College under Larry Smith. And was fortunate enough to go to Grand Canyon University. At uh, at Grand Canyon, I really had to grow up in a in a hurry in college, and uh, I credit them for kind of turning me into a man and and giving me a lot of the the ideals and and character traits that I try to instill in my players today. And uh, I didn't plan on being a coach. I just uh, played baseball at Grand Canyon University. I was I was going to go into business, and then I was asked to coach a summer team in 1996 with one of my friends and he was a coronado soul high school alumni 
uh, he uh, had graduated the same year. I played with him at, at Scottsdale. And uh, I had so much fun coaching, and uh, I realized that I had the coaching bug, and maybe it was in my genes from my dad, I don't know. But I switched my major that very next fall, and it just happened that in my senior year, uh, they asked me to volunteer coach at uh, Grand Canyon after I graduated. So I stayed there for a year and then went on to Corona del Sol High School in Tempe, Arizona, and I was the varsity assistant in 1997, and I was the assistant until... 2005 on varsity, and then I got the job in 2006, uh, and I've been there ever since. So I, so I'm not really a traveling man. I've only uh, been at one place since 1997. Wow, that's awesome. I, w- <laughs> I wish I could say that. And I think that most coaching circles probably haven't had that same role that you have, which is absolutely fantastic because you're completely immersed in the culture that was and the culture that is, and and what you guys are continuing to grow. And let's just go ahead and dig into the player development piece. And obviously, you guys have been very successful since you, well, when you were an assistant and since you've taken over the helm of being the head coach there. But let's start in this in the fall and write what we're smack dab in the middle of right now. And what does this fall look like for you guys? You know, tell us about your time res- restrictions and how you're getting the most out of them. Well, you know, I don't, I guess I don't try to, to be different to make a statement, but I kind of look at what the established system is that a lot of people are doing. And, and then I, then I really dissect it in my own brain. And I, and I look at what high school kids are, you know, how are they interacting in, in that, in that system, whether it be fall ball, summer ball, during the spring, whatever. And as I dissect it, I kind of look and I go, what's best for the kids? What's going to get the best for eventually the spring season, which is the, the one that counts for all of us in high school baseball. So when I looked at fall ball when I first started, one thing I noticed as an assistant is that kids seemed to be, uh, I don't know, they, they were really reluctant if they weren't playing another sport to, to be excited about playing baseball in the fall. It's really hot. It's humid. You're not really playing competitions for uh, winning competition weekend kind of games, you know, and uh, the, those weekend games don't count for anything. And I just felt like there wasn't a lot of investment in the kids. So I decided to turn things a little bit upside down (laughs) and I got them off the field. I got them into the weight room and I said, let's take a break from baseball after July and let's go August, September and halfway through October and just get really strong. And so that's what we do early fall where we have a seventh hour baseball class at our school where I have about 60 baseball players in that class. And we can do really anything we want in that class when it comes to ground balls, fly balls, BP, we can work small groups, catching group, but we don't do that in the early fall. We just work on getting them strong. We noticed a little bit early on in the process too, that we wanted to get them the best training possible. So we kind of searched out some of the local gyms that our guys were going to and trainers they were going to. And we found a specific gym that they'll take some of their young trainers and bring them in right at the end of our seventh hour baseball class and they'll work out with our guys for, for an hour. And they can get required hours in. And for a really small fee, our kids can get quality training. That's great. Um, yeah, we don't have a, we don't have, a lot of schools have a strength guy on campus that runs out. We don't have that yet. Uh, we're trying to at our school. So that's what we've kind of chosen to do to get somebody who's knowledgeable in getting kids strong in the proper way and moving forward with strength. It's such a big part of the game. So we'll do that August through probably middle October, we'll start taking them outside, cools down a little bit, 
and uh, start throwing them a, a little bit in, in mid-October. And then uh, as we roll into November, we'll get ready for a camp. And we do a camp that runs from about Thanksgiving time. It goes three days a week in November, December. We take Christmas break off and then we come back in January. We go all the way until uh, the first week of February and tryouts. And we'll do three days a week. We'll do a defensive day, an offensive day. And usually like a coach pitch scrimmage early on in the camp because we're trying to, you know, get kids going slowly with throwing. We'll do that through November, December. But by January, we'll finally get into playing a lot of scrimmages. Okay. So kids are ready to go by the time we go into tryouts in early, in early February. Well, perfect. So you decided to, well, I guess my question for you too is, is after looking at the guys that you had, did you decide that they play a lot of baseball and that the weight room was just kind of more important at the time period that you're, they're in? Because you literally can play all year around in Arizona and there are other parts of the country would be like, oh, you do what? You spend how much time in the weight room? But giving our yeah. listeners a little bit of context, those guys are playing most of the year anyways. Yeah, you know, here's what I realized. You, we want to know, here's the key to the whole thing. The key was 02, 03, and 04 when I was an assistant. We used to start in August, and it was hot. And kids were, I could just see it in their face. I was miserable out there. It was hot. It was humid. Uh, we'd already gone through summer ball, the season, everything. And it was wearing on them. And we, we just, they didn't seem at any point to get a sustained period of rest. And we were talking about getting stronger but there wasn't a sustained period of letting your body recoup a little bit, your arm recoup a little bit, and mostly your mind. And then 02, 03, and 04, we lost in the first round. We got one and queued in the state playoffs in spring. And when I looked back at that, I'm like, you know, it was the most important time of the entire year going into the state playoffs. And our kids were mentally fragged. They were burnt out. And I was like, how does this happen? This is the best time of year. Right. And so I looked at it and I said, you know, we need to reassess what we're doing here and we need to keep them hungry for that time. Okay. And that's why I did it. And what I've realized is our kids are so much more energized when it comes to the end of spring. Okay. Yeah, they're ready to go. And we get into the playoffs and I see some other schools. There are some other schools around that they seemingly never stop and they do wear out. Come that time period, I, I think I've just learned that more is not necessarily better, especially when it comes to the mental side of things. Perfect. I, I like that. And I think that speaks a lot to you for knowing just the pulse of the team that you have. And without having that experience and without being in the trenches with those guys, it's really hard to see things like that. So I really like that. And, you know, since you've been there, again, you've gotten to see the culture from day one since you walked in until now. And so what are some different things that you guys do with culture building or setting an environment for you guys to be successful or really just what is important and what are you intentional about? Well, I do a, uh, actually at the parent meeting, the title of what I talk about is Aztec Baseball 101. And then I kind of title our program, literally a character-based program. I want them to know just boldly in a title that that's what we stand for, that I'm all about building character and having a standards driven program and building young men, the wins will come as I tell them. And, uh, until a coach trusts this and is willing to stick his neck out there and have standards and have character and build that into him. Once you trust that, you'll see how those wins do come, uh, to do that. We ingrain 
what's called the PT42 mentality. And it's actually based off of uh, a guy named Pat Tillman, sure. uh, who a lot of people know. I'm, I'm increasingly, as time goes by, realizing they don't know who he is. Hmm. He was a guy who, who locally played football here at Arizona State University. And eventually, after uh, the events in 2001, uh, he decided to give up an NFL career to go and fight uh, for our country. And, and it was just such a selfless move. And he was... and. So I got into studying him, and I was so impressed with him doing that. And then when he eventually gave his life in that because he was killed fighting in the Middle East, it really impacted me to the point where I was like, wow, this is a guy that you can almost set a pillar on for your program. Um, granted, he was a football player. We're playing baseball. But from the human standpoint, I make sure the kids know the story of, of Pat Tillman. And we put really his good. logo, the, the P242 logo. It's on our fence at our field. It's mm -hmm. on... It's on our T-shirts, on the sleeve. I make sure they know they know what the PT42 mentality is. Through his story, we teach definitely the idea of selflessness, which is on the back of our, our practice shirts, just trying to get him to buy into team and being bigger than yourself, serving your team. That was something big that we used this, this year. We talked about constantly serving your teammates, whether it's you have something negative go on with you, you got to turn it around and serve the players that are around you instead of focusing on yourself. Because if you do that, eventually it's going to lead to a positive vibe around the team and it's going to lead to wins. We also put the use terms like, and we have a big banner uh, that says uncommon. And, you know, in a day and age where uh, common is doing things that I deem to be not necessarily character driven. Sure. We try to be rebels, you know, because the rebel anymore is the one who's choosing not to do that. They refuse to lower their standards and to really have true character, not just say you have character and not live up to it. So we're kind of just refusing to give in to the what have become the norms of society. I think actions are huge in this. Uh, one of the things uh, in the community doing things, we try to do a lot of community service things. We, we do, uh, there's an organization called Feed My Starving Children here in the Valley where, where you go and you put together packets of food with ingredients and you box them up and you, you do it in a, in a, in a short period of time, you try to do it as fast as you can. And they, they go to, uh, uh, starving children all over the world. Uh, we also do on Christmas Eve, which I thought, I didn't know if that was going to work asking kids to do something on Christmas Eve, but on Christmas Eve, uh, we go to St. Vincent de Paul downtown and we feed the homeless. And that one has been unbelievably impactful coaches families get involved players get involved and it's just from a decent middle middle upper class neighborhood where we're at to be able to see that and what it's like on christmas eve is is really really it's re really eye-opening for these kids it's been amazing so you got to kind of live it too you can't just preach these things and then throw them up as a standard you got to kind of live it so we, we really try to do that as well and I, I think it's paid huge dividends in our kids very cool very cool do you mind going in a little bit of depth on what you talk to, to the parents? Because I, you know, this is a topic that is increasingly becoming more and more important, you know, every year. And, and there's not a lot of stuff out there. It's probably dependent upon each program and each head coach's personality. But you lay the groundwork of expectations at the one-on-one -on -one meeting. And do you mind just going a little bit more in depth in uh, about what you what you cover specifically? Well, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's something, again, I didn't, <laughs> like any coach, you don't start out thinking, 
oh, you know, I this is exactly how I'm going to do it, and it's going to stay like this for 20 years. I didn't necessarily start this way, but I've, I've definitely figured out that your best uh, your best defense is a good offense when it comes to getting out there with communication and getting ahead of everything. Right. So when we do have our, I think we have tryouts that last through a Friday. We'll have our cuts on that Friday. Saturday, we'll have a practice. And then early that next week, Monday or Tuesday, we'll do a parent meeting for all three levels. We have a freshman JV and varsity. Mm-hmm. And in that, I present Aztec Baseball 101. And it's just it's a look at some of the standards, some of the character driven that we are an academic first program. We never give in on academics, mm-hmm. but we tell I, I try to explain to them where they're coming from in today's day day and age, which all of our kids come through club baseball of some sort. Okay. And they're coming into a high school setting. And I get them to look at I take a picture of it and I say, look, here's where you're coming from. You're coming from where you pay possibly monthly dues of a couple hundred bucks. And with that, you feel like you're given a service. And with that service, you're saying, hey, where's my playing time? And so in answer to that, you know, coaches are saying, well, I can't have big teams. I got to have small teams. And with these small teams, I got to make sure that I play guys a certain amount of time. And they're trying to win the tournament. You know, people are trying to be competitive, but then people want to play. So as a result, you see kids jumping around a lot. You see a lot of unhappy parents if they're not getting their money's worth. And I just kind of get them to see the difference between that model, which they've been playing in for years and years and years. And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden... They're going into a model where, I mean, and in our district in particular, it's $50 for the entire season, which is the greatest deal ever. And yeah, it's, it's you know, that's what the pay to play is for our specific district. Mm-hmm. And so there's less owed to them, I think, I, I guess is what I'm telling them. And I'm telling them, you know, as we go into this, as we go into high school baseball, this is something where we're going to be honest with you. We're going to play the best kids. We're going to have standards. We're a school, so the school environment plays into this both behavior, but most importantly, academically. I set the tone for them that uh, I think everybody else, well, I know everybody else in the school abides by our the Arizona Interscholastic Association, which says that you can have, as long as you have a D and better, you can actually play. Well, being uncommon and, and you know trying to step the bar up a little bit, set high standards, I say, you know what? I want kids that at least can get a C. I think every kid should be able to get a C. I'm a high school teacher. I know the landscape at my particular school. They should get a C or better if they are going to want to play. So we actually don't let kids play with a D or an F. Uh, they have to have a C or better. So I, t- I talk to them about that as well. And, and, and I, I make sure I tell them, and I mention this over and over again, that they are here to go to school first. We were built this is, we only exist because we are a school and to educate kids. Mm-hmm. Baseball is kind of an ancillary arm of this whole thing. And I think that's paid huge dividends. We've got a lot of kids who uh, we got a few kids coming in this next year that are deciding to come to Corona because we stress academics, because we stress character and standards and stuff. And I've, you know, I ask them when they come from different schools, you know, why do you decide to come here? And that definitely plays into it. And it's something that from the get go, I'm, I'm very transparent with parents in that in that initial meeting that's what we expect so we you know i do this transition from this is the difference between club ball and high school baseball up front this is what you can expect i talk about academics those are the things that i choose to kind of handle in that that aztec baseball 101 meeting i love that and i love that you're laying the groundwork for 
like you like you mentioned, and it's something that you're really getting ahead of some of the different issues, and you're letting them see you as a person, not just as the barrier between their son and the Division One scholarship that they all inevitably think that they're they're going to get. And I say that jokingly, but I, I think a lot of parents obviously overvalue their their son's uh, playing ability just because they've seen them for forever and they're so invested. And I, I like that a lot. And, and the more that, that I do interviews with coaches who do that, the less, you know, the less problems that they have. I'm sure that you still get the angry parent email, but I think that you're obviously doing a great job with trying to head a lot of that stuff off and them letting them get to know you. And I think that that you have seen that that pays dividends in, in just tremendous ways. But another thing that I really like and I really want to get into is, is how, so you're laying the groundwork for the parents, but how do you personally get to know your players and how do you develop them? You talked about the classrooms or school being the most important thing and that, that that can't take precedent over anything else or that does take precedent over everything else. So how do you get to know them personally and what are some different things that you do to help them become their personal best? Well, you know, one on a personal level, I'm not afraid to, you know, as I get to know them and figure out, you know, I I like to joke with them and, and have fun with them as I get to know them a little bit more. But I think that one of the greatest things you can do for them that gets you to realize there's some investment is, is you get them to learn who they really are. I mean, a lot of them have gone to, different hitting coaches and pitching coaches and stuff and not all of them, but sometimes they go into these situations and that hitting guy is trying to maybe turn them into something that they're not, and, you know, five foot five, 130 pound kid starting as a sophomore or wants to make the team and maybe teaching him to, you know, drop and drive and try to hit for power at that size isn't the best thing for him at that time. And, you know, so I'm very candid with talking to him. And one of the first conversations I like having to him is, who are you as a player? Are you a scrappy guy? Are you a, uh, you know, as a hitter, are you a doubles guy or you just go up there and bombs away as an arm? Are you a, a power guy? Are you a finesse guy? Are you a thumber? What are you? And then at that, it doesn't mean they're not going to change, but once I get them to realize who they are, then and, and embrace who they are, we kind of coach them to that, to that standard. And, and every, every kid's different and they get a little bit of an identity, I think to start out of who they are. And, and again, you know, that size may change. They may grow bigger and they may become a power arm. They may become a power hitter, but, uh, getting to know them uh, as by getting them to realize who they are as a player is really, really important. You can't coach them all the exact same way. Our whole entire program, we tell our guys, we love them a lot. Uh, like literally we tell them, we love you guys. I love being around you. Just a lot of positive vibes. And when they see you're invested in that, they're going to they're gonna give back. They're going to be more receptive to your coaching. They're going to be what we call coachable in our program. The other thing we do as we develop kids is, is we, we try to get them to realize after we get those standards what to expect. You know, what are our standards? What do we hold them accountable for? What is it that when we're talking to them, we need to move on uh, from from what they've done in the past to to what we're trying to do them with, with them in the future? And if you communicate out front, you mentioned that when I was talking about the parents, that talking out in front and getting out in front of them, it doesn't change from parent to player. You get trying to get out in front of parents to prevent future problems. And with kids, kids are going to build things in their heads constantly. 
coach doesn't like me. I'm not as good at that's his favorite guy. So the more communication and getting out in front of that, mm-hmm. the better. So, you know, I am a huge you know watcher of players and, and mannerisms and what have they changed their mentality from day to day. And if I see anything, I'll pull them aside and I'll have conversations. When we change a, a lineup, for instance, I will try to get out in front of it. You know, kids automatically going, well, what do I need to do to get better? I want to get back in there. As soon as I make the thought of, well, let's switch this guy up. The next thought in my head is I'm going to go tell that guy who was in the lineup and is now not in the lineup exactly why and that we haven't given up on him and what he needs to do to get another chance. Because, uh, you know, that's really what they want to know. And as much as we say to them, hey, we have an open door policy. Come and talk to us. You know, they're kids and a lot of them are going to do that. So the more you can get out in front of that. And if you make a process of communicating early and automatically communicating any change that you know to people that are involved, you'd be amazed that a, a player that is informed on what you're doing is a happier player. And in the long run, that's not a disgruntled player. It's not a confused player. I tell you, I think that's one of the most dangerous things in high school baseball is a kid that is confused about their playing time, confused about where they stand. And you know where they stand. And I don't know why some coaches don't share that with them. I think that's one of the greatest things. Constantly overshare and communicate where they stand. And you'll see team team unity rise. I really, I really do believe that. Definitely, definitely. And again, you are obviously putting communication at the forefront. And that's something that, that I am working on on a consistent basis because I, you know, we get into coaching and that's not something that we immediately think of as, you know, maybe the kids that we're raising that will be coaches someday, that will be really important to them. And and I think that it's really important to us now, but it's not natural for me to tell a kid, Hey, you're not batting in the seven hole today because you're hitting 129. You know, that's just, that's just obvious to me. But at the same time, they, I think that if you tell them that they will at least have this, Oh, okay. And do it in a more eloquent way than that. I hope. But you know, if we're in the, if we're in this game to be able to develop men of character and baseball players second, then I think that that's, that's a conversation that needs to be had. And, you know, I, I think that when we're all in this together, that's something that I think that, that it is important, or you may have a kid that's working really hard. That's just not as good that's not as good as the other guys that are in the lineup. And you just tell them that you just, Hey, I see you working hard. I see that you're, you know, you're putting in a lot of effort and it's going to pay off in the long run. It might not at right at this moment, but I see you, like I see you working. And I think that that's something that gives them a little bit of a boost of energy because, you know, we as coaches, if we are really working hard and never getting any sort of just, Hey, thank you. I, I see you doing this. Then sometimes we burn ourselves out, but Sometimes just a little bit of an encouragement goes a long way. Oh, 100%. And, and I love how you mentioned the guy that it's not even a lineup change. It's just a guy who hasn't been in the lineup for, uh, you know, he's a secondary player. Right. Uh, you got to have him to some respect. And he might not have played for the whole season, but you got to still communicate with him. You got to give him some feedback on what he's doing and where he's going. And, 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 you know, throughout the season, you can't forget about anything. You leave guys behind. And again, you're losing that team dynamic. And, you know, our last year, last year, our team went to the state championship and unfortunately we lost, but arguably the greatest team dynamic I've ever been a part of. And for me, it was just validation for everything we do as coaches at Corona, 
to build that team dynamic because I saw them serving one another. I saw them playing for one another. And, and you know, as it went on, it, it's a rare time. I think every coach wants to turn over the reins to the team and say, here, you own this team. Let me facilitate. You own and you regulate the team dynamics. Let me facilitate the other stuff. And I've given that challenge to teams over and over again to really have true ownership of the group. And some teams have done better than others, but this team perfected it as far as what I what I think it looks like. And it ended up being something that took them far into the season. And, and it was uh, something all used from last year that really moved forward for me as a coach. But it does have to do with that, that team dynamic that they trusted one another and that we all were communicating as we went through the season. Sure. So on the flip side of this player development question, I'd like to know how how are you doing the same thing with your coaches, your assistant coaches that I'm assuming that, you know, most assistants want to do a really good job and maybe in the back of their mind they're thinking about being a head coach someday. So how do you prepare them for that moment or just how do you prepare them to continue to get better? You're setting the example by being a lifelong learner like you are and and critically thinking and changing some different things that you've done from the past to the present. But how are you helping just develop them as assistant coaches? Wow. I, I'm in a I'm in a unique situation. And I gotta be honest, I don't know that in the state of Arizona right now, anybody else <laughs> has this situation. And trust me, I realize how lucky I am. I have assistants on my varsity. I have assistants that have been head coaches. I have an assistant in Tanner Vesley, who's coached with USA Baseball on national teams and has turned down just about every great job in the Valley to stay at Corona. I have a Hall of Fame coach as a freshman coach who was the former coach at Corona Del Sol. I have a Hall of, National Hall of Fame coach that's on staff on varsity with me from a local school called Desert Vista named Stan Lukatic. And he coaches on varsity. So I have guys that are, are either kind of at the end of their career and they just want to stay, mm-hmm. or I have guys that for some reason I've been able to hold on to and they could be head coaches sure. themselves on staff. And uh, I'm so unbelievably fortunate to have these guys because they're amazing friends and they're, they're, they're the most loyal humans. And I think where you start with your coaches and development is whether they're young or, or they're kind of coming in and they're saying, you know, I've been the head coach and I want to just be an assistant now. I'm tired of the parent dynamic or whatever. You got to let them coach. And that's, that's what I think in today's day and age may drive coaches away. If, if you're going to take the time to have somebody coach with you and you sit down and you talk and you say, okay, what's your specialty? What do you specialize in? How can you help this program? You know, important questions that you ask. I think from that dialogue, once you figure that out, that they're a fit, you got to let them do what they do. If you make the decision to hire them, you got to let them do what you do. You got to let go of the reins a little bit. And if they if they don't participate in the process of coaching, then there's no investment. And when there's no investment, coaches are disgruntled, just like players would be if they're not if they don't feel like they're invested, and they're going to go somewhere else, or they're going to say, "Yeah, I can do something better with my time." If they feel their time's valued, you're going to retain them. And and I've I've had two, three, four, five coaches that are on my staff from freshmen through my varsity team right now that have been with me since either 2006 or 2007. And I think it's, I I think that's, that's the thing is, is 
if you bother to bring him on staff, you got to let him coach. And if you can't let him coach, you shouldn't have brought him in. That's the way I look. That's the way I look at it. With some of our younger coaches, we have a young coach that played for us in graduated in 2004. He had gone to South Mac Community College, and then from there came to Corona and started coaching on freshmen. He's now coaching our our JV team. He's been doing a phenomenal job with our JV team. But one of the things to try to get him, I don't know that he ever wants to be a head coach, but he's turned in a phenomenal coach. And we give him our summer program. A lot of our kids will go to play for bigger clubs in the summer as we head into to summer. And some of our kids who, you know, maybe can't afford the, the some of the other clubs or, you know, just want to play with our school team in the summer, they'll play with our JV guy. Who So I'll kind of step him up and they'll play a varsity schedule. So he's kind of getting his chops coaching against other varsity teams. And I think uh, to entrust your younger coaches with, with running some of your programs outside of the main springs, spring season is very important as well. It gives the kids an opportunity or gives the coaches a opportunity, young coaches to lead a team instead of just kind of being feeling like they're an underling of some sort. And I think it's important too. one thing my dad told me a long time ago is give the kids a break from you and let somebody else coach them during the year, namely in the summer. And so from my very first year, I've, I've stepped away and let some of our younger coaches coach our summer ball programs. And then I kind of step back into the pitcher starting in the fall. So sure. uh, I think giving them that opportunity and hiring guys that you trust and then letting them coach. And, and that's the one thing that I think if you would ask any of my assistants, they'll talk about why they stay around or stay around is definitely because I let them do what they're good at. For sure, for sure. And I think that that is a testament to you, too, to let those guys do what they do and giving them a ton of responsibility. I know that, that our head coach has, has done that for me and does that for most of the assistants that we have. And I think that kind of curtails the want to take over your own program a little bit just because you do have responsibility and you do get to learn from somebody well or that's really good at their job. But also, I think that that it's funny you, you mentioned taking a step back in the summer. Our, our head coach was the assistant freshman summer ball coach this summer and we had uh, we we had two guys he he usually doesn't coach but we had two guys leave at and one of them took a job at the last minute before summer started and he he just said hey i'll i'll be the assistant and so our our freshman head coach this summer was a a kid who just graduated from college uh, this past year and, and he was our volunteer from january to may and so he he said, I'll be your assistant. So he was the assistant to a kid who was 22 years old this summer. <laughs> and that was really, really fun to watch. He had a ton of fun with that. But yeah, it was, that's serving, man. That's what serving's all about right there. Man, I'll tell you what, it was really eye-opening to see that because it, there was just no ego involved. And he let him, you know, fail forward and, and would just give him all this different stuff. And, and I love that. And, and he's done that with all of us in the past of just letting us try new things. And if they didn't work using his experience to say, hey, we can do this, but we may can do this or this a little bit better. And and so it sounds like you guys are on the same wavelength, which is really, really, really cool. And and why you are able to keep assistance around for so long, there's no no question about it. Another thing that, that I like to ask as far as, you know, you haven't had to hire very many guys, but do you get the opportunity to interview them? And, and if so, you know, what are some different questions that you ask to try and figure out who they truly are as a person or, you know, what's that hiring process look like? Jeez. Yeah. I think, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said I haven't really hired a lot of guys. <laughs> I had to hire a lot of guys. That's a blessing. <clears throat> yeah, it really is. It really is. We're mostly dealing with assistants 
because my my freshman coaches have been there the whole entire time. They've been there. Well, one of them has been there since 1983. He was with the previous coach, and he's gone. He's just a phenomenal guy. Then you know when when the patriarch of the baseball program and he, in that high school hall of fame, Ron Devaney, uh, who was Corona's original coach, when he comes back and says, "Hey, I'd like to help out," and he's helping out on freshman. I don't know that a interview was really required at that point. Uh, and so I think I go back to let's just put it this way: if I were to lose some some major parts, which everybody's important in a program, but you lose some major figures in your program, I think when you replace them. I think the the first thing you do is you start with the character. You start with the standards that where do you stand on that? And you, I think you can kind of get a gauge when you talk to people on whether they're shining you on or whether they're really authentic in, in what they believe in. Uh, and you start with that. And and once you settle into them as a human being, I think you, you get into the baseball side. And on the baseball side, it's like, what are you good at? What do you, what do you consider? What's your best attribute of a coach? Are you a hitting guy? Do you consider yourself a pitching guy? Can you teach infield player, outfield player? What can you do? And then, and then maybe even go into some, some questions on what does that look like? What is your, you know, you got, you got a kid that is struggling uh, going the other way. What's some of the adjustments you could make? You got a kid who is closing himself off on a backhand and uh, his body's, uh, his feet underneath him, his body's going in the wrong direction when he throws. What do you do to correct that? You know, anything, that you can throw out there to to just get a feel of where they are and how they correct it and how that aligns with what you believe in. And and then, you know, if I was on a hiring process, I would respectfully say, hey, you know, let me let me uh, see if, if I need to think about it, what that looks like within my staff. And if it fits, I think that'd be a guy that I'd want to be involved in, involved with. A lot of the guys that have come to coach with me over the years, mostly as these assistants, I kind of know what I'm getting. They're either friends or they're people that I've, I've coached with in other scenarios. So I kind of know what I'm getting. So I don't, I don't necessarily have to go that in depth. But that would probably be my process if, okay. if I had to kind of start from square one. I understand completely. And I like that a lot. I think you, with those questions and with seeing guys coach, I think that you really get to see who they truly are. And some guys are just really good interviewers. And then they get around the kids and you're like, oh, so – you know, that's, that's yes. always something that I'm sure guys who have to hire several different people a year have, have witnessed and noticed. And you've talked a lot about, you know, your program and your culture and your environment. And what are your rules? Do you have rules? And you talked about one of the standards being that you're going to be really good in the classroom and they're going to do things outside of baseball to better themselves. You talked about community service. Are there some things that you write down that you say, okay, guys, I love you guys to death, but just for instance, ours are be on time and do things right. And they're a little bit broad, but for you to fulfill your potential at anything, you're going to have to be on time. And that's just something that is important to us. So what are some things that are really important to you that I don't want to say pet peeves, but things that are overarching in the program that you say, when you go to Corona, these are the things that you are expected to do. And it may be a long list, maybe a short list, but I'm just going to let you roll with it. Well, if you're truly going to be uncommon and you're going to use terms like selflessness and serve and, you know, be the the new rebels of society by doing the right thing, you know, you got to start with, like, if I was going to talk to a young coach and I say, here's where you start your program, I would say, set the bar high, they'll rise up. And it's going to be rough the first few years uh, between parent and, and player dynamics. 
you're going to see some bumps in the road. And then all of a sudden, I don't know that I'd call it smooth sailing, <laughs> but you're going to see things definitely smooth out a little bit sure. as you kind of look around and you talk to other coaches and you see some of the things they're going, going through. I think the advice you want to say to them is you've got to raise that bar. They will rise up to that, both parents and players. Things like, you know, in, in the, it's funny. Again, I've been doing a lot of USA baseball stuff this summer. And as I talk to all these coaches from around the country, whether it be Texas, Florida, uh, the Northeast, Tennessee, California, there's one big thing that, that's becoming huge in high schools today, and that's the vaping issue. Vaping is enormous. It's terrible. Uh, oh, my gosh. And, you know, it's, it's happening in classrooms. It's happening in bathrooms. It's happening. So, you know, we have a zero-tolerance rule on drugs and alcohol. You're done on either one of them. There's no three-day suspension. You know, they say in our district policy you can, you know, give them this – you know, the school suspension and, and then bring them back. But to me, it's a privilege to play a sport. And so when you start with setting the bar high, you start with that this is a privilege. It's not, this isn't given to you. And so having zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol, and now with the, the world of vaping, we've put vaping in that as well. And some people say, well, that's kind of harsh. And to me, it's just keeping the bar high. And it's something that, again, if other people are doing it, it should be a sacrifice to have the privilege to play a sport and to represent in our situation, to represent Aztec baseball in our school. I think if you were to say, what do I wrap this all around when I look at it? I use the quote, I would rather lose with winners than win with losers a lot. I like that. Uh, and, and I've proven that. <laughs> uh, a few years back, I had some kids that made a terrible decision in tryouts to get caught uh, smoking marijuana during tryouts. They were all returners. And I cut all of them. I cut five of them and brought sophomores up. And that resulted in, in really my only losing season. And it, But it was okay because the next two years, we were in great shape. And from that point on, I think parents and uh, players knew that I was going to walk the walk. I didn't do it to be malicious of anything. I just I had set that standard and I stuck to that standard. And people were really angry at a lot of parent meetings with that. But now looking seven, eight years in the future, I feel like it paid huge dividends in that I was consistent with my rules, that I set a bar and uh, then I lived up to it. And, uh, and that's not, easy you know, to it, do. it's not, it's not, you know, and, and, and some of my, some of my things, I don't know that sometimes they come off as archaic, but, and they don't necessarily, I get, I guess work for everybody. I wouldn't say like, ah, how could you not do this? How could you let that kid back on your team? I just know what works for me. So that's what I pay attention to. <laughs> Things like, you know, going back to my dad, uh, he had a haircut policy that you had to have a haircut that's off the ears and off the neck. And so mm -hmm. when I started as head coach in 2006, I enacted a haircut policy that you had to have a haircut off, off your ears and off your neck. And first couple of years, it was it, never the parents. It was always the kids uh, kind of complaining and by 2009, 2010, I don't even hear about it. Uh, they know it. We still have it. Sure. We still have a haircut policy, and no one says a word about it. They just get it done. It's kind of self-policing, I guess you could say. They Each year they know that that's one of our things, is that we, um, we're, we're going to look good, feel good, play good, and that, that's one of my things. And I know some of these guys are like, Coach, i got to have flow. i got to have the flow. And But again, to me, it, it's, it's becoming in my program a little bit of a, a sacrifice and a part of, of being an Aztec baseball player. So 
Yeah, I hope I answered answered that question to the best of my ability. You know, it we do a thing too, which I'd kind of like to give a selfish plug out to the Versus Cancer. Have you ever heard of the Versus Cancer Foundation? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Chase Jones, who is the founder, I met him at USA Baseball 2009 or 10, maybe. And he had just uh, beat cancer. And he was, uh, he was playing baseball at University of Northern Carolina, North Carolina. And uh, he said he was starting this, this foundation. He started it. And we were the first high school to actually shave our heads for versus cancer. And that has been an amazing thing we do every other year. We do about 60-plus players and coaches that shave their heads at home plate. It's a week before our season starts. All the parents are there to watch. Mm-hmm. We have a tarp down on home plate, and the coaches shave everybody's heads. And it's just, it's again, it's just such a thing that we try to do to prove we're uncommon, to prove we're selfless. And it's a big thing for a kid to give up his hair. <laughs> We've had some moms cry, actually. Oh, I'm sure. Over their son, you know, losing their hair. But uh, the kids really give into that. And... uh it's been a special thing. And that that's another thing about like rules in your program. Just being a part of a team is huge and realizing that it's a privilege. So I don't know how clear I was on that. Probably clear as mud, but <laughs> yeah, you know, zero tolerance on some stuff sure. is as minuscule as little things like haircut policies. Those are the things we kind of stand for when it comes to rules and standards. And, you know, going back to the grade thing, the grade thing is, is where everything starts. So that's the first, first mention of every conversation is that you're here to go to school. And if you can't get it done in that building up there, you ain't going to get it done out here. And that's very important as well. Coaches, your players aren't afraid to work hard. They just can't afford to get it wrong. And that is why you should attend the 2019 Skill Acquisition Summit hosted by Randy Sullivan's Florida Baseball Ranch and the Strength of Skills from the Netherlands. This annual event will take place on October 12th and the 13th in Lakeland, Florida. This event will have a premier panel of presenters, including Franz Bosch from the Netherlands and Rob Gray from Arizona State University. The most forward-thinking coaches in the business will funnel the information down to the bare bones of on-the-field application of leading-edge skill acquisition and motor learning science. You will leave equipped to help your players optimize the return on their training time. For more information, Call 1-866-STRIKE-3 or go to floridabaseballranch.com backslash summit. Presenters include Franz Bosch, Rob Gray, Martin Nyhoff, Bart Honegroff, David Mann, Paul Venner, Ron Wolforth, and Coach Randy Sullivan, who will serve as host and moderator for this exciting event. I will be in attendance, and I hope to see you there. Definitely, I, I like that, and again, I think it's a, for the most part, it's a, a reflection on, you know, how hard of workers are they? Because if we're being honest, you know, we're both in the high school setting and, and I teach and, and do, do you teach as well? I do. Yes. Okay. I teach social studies. And so, same. And so we understand that if we see a kid that's working really, really hard, they're going to be okay in the classroom. And it's usually the kids yes. that, that are slacking or are turds in the classroom that aren't doing well. And I think that that's a reflection on their on their character and work ethic for the most part, as much as it is about their ability to learn. And especially when we're talking about grades, which is a whole different subject. But let's go ahead and skip to the spring. So we just started spring practice and we're getting it rolling. You take us through what a typical practice plan looks like and how much time it's you, that you spend on what and, and how are you getting the most out of your practices 
you know, during the season or just right before the season starts? Well, you know, as we start out, that looks a little bit different, obviously, kind of like what you just alluded to, uh, than what it looks like is you're, it's getting hotter and you're getting into the state tournament. But well, we start out, well, I, I guess we'll start actually where, what time we start out. We're, we're done at 2.15. Our school gets out at 2.15. So we usually start daily around 2.45. We have, uh, we do bands, usually starting about 10 minutes before 2.45, so about 2.35. Once the guys are stretched out and banded, then we'll go out and we'll do some dynamic stretching and then throw and usually we get going about 3:15 or so so i'm looking to go you know 2 to 15 if i can as far as the time frame 2 hours 2 hours 15 minutes you know the beginning of the year we'll start i just think it's to keep all of the levels together i i never have understood why coaches have you know hey freshman go do your own thing and jv do your own thing and then let me like reinvent the wheel when they get to me so I make sure all three levels are on the same page. The beginning of the year, our practices are very situation-based at the beginning. In fact, I'll have the freshman and JV getting loose at the same time we are. We'll time it out. They'll then come over to our field at around 3.15. And then each day that first week, we'll do a situation to start practice. So we'll do like, here's varsity running first and third while freshman and JV take a knee off to the side. And we kind of walk through it and say why everybody goes everywhere. And then... Um, that one situation is done for the day. We'll send freshmen and JV back to their field and then we'll work on it a little bit more and they'll work on it on auxiliary fields a little bit more. Okay. But, and then each day we kind of progress. So we'll do like first and thirds, the first day, bunt D we'll do different situation, pickoff plays, maybe on Wednesday, we'll work on it a little bit more and we'll send freshmen and JV after they've seen us running them, what they do. So beginning of the year practice looks like a lot of situation play, a lot of fundamental individual work breaking down at the beginning of practice usually starting with a situation work time period usually around 20 20 to 25 minutes and then we'll do about another 20 to 25 minutes on individualized work where i'll I'll break down infield play and do some fundamental drills with them outfielders will do you know drop steps in the outfield with our outfield guy and just do regular fly balls and then we're big that just about every single day we hit live VP. And uh, again, I'm fortunate. I know not everybody else has this. I'm fortunate to have plenty of guys to throw BP. So I'm a big believer in live VP if you have arms to throw it. I know that's a luxury for some guys that machines have to come into play and stuff like that. But we do all live VP just about every single day. Perfect. And so then we'll go through a live BP round. And then that's usually... Uh, at the beginning of the year, where we finish up, and then we we do field work. As the season progresses, freshmen and JV kind of become a little bit more autonomous in their practice and their practice plan. And we we will start the day with PFPs one day. We'll start with situation play. Some days uh, it's always great at least once a week to get some situation a play in, and that's where we really like to compete and get those competitive juices out. Because the more we over the last four or five years have injected competition and practice and finding ways to get them to compete i feel like it plays it pays huge dividends as we get into games and they love to do it it makes practice more enjoyable as well okay so yeah competition competition based uh situation games and bp rounds those are those are huge in what we're doing tell us more about it i'm all in it really comes down to three words uh anymore i guess in the last couple of years uh, i brought on stan lukitich from desert vista two years ago he's again national hall of fame coach and uh 
his wife, Sue, loves to cook chocolate chip cookies. So one day, a couple of years ago, he says, you know, let's do one of our competitions. And for today, whoever wins is going to, uh, Sue's going to make some chocolate chip cookies. And I go, wow, that, that sounds great. I'd like to taste these chocolate chip cookies. So he went and talked to Sue and, and brought, brought back these chocolate chip cookies and brought them in. I tried one. I'm like, God, these are amazing. And it took one time of us doing a competition where the winner got chocolate chip cookies and the loser basically had to do all the field work for them to realize what this was all about. And now it's a common occurrence. We kind of bribe them with uh, chocolate chip cookies uh, a lot of the time, not every time <laughs> at the end of practice. And uh, we'll uh, get some competition in. I like to do setting up three teams okay. and three rotations in, in uh, like a situation game. We'll have, again, a coach on the mound. And with that, you set up a defensive lineup. And on that defensive lineup, you put nine starting players in the first rotation that are playing defense, including a pitcher behind the coach that's throwing. So he's got a backup. He's got to you know, move on bunts and stuff like that. We'll have uh, five guys in that first group that are hitting. And then anybody that's left, mostly if they're offensive players, we'll send them down to the cage to hit, to get some, just get some cuts in so they're not... It's not a long rotation, so they're not down there forever. If there's any POs that are left over, then they'll rotate with the pitcher that's on the mound throughout that one round. But we'll name a situation like, okay, it's hit and run is the first situation. In that first rotation, the guys on defense will play defense off a hit and run. The coach will throw normal. And then the five-man group, each guy will go through and will count if they can get the hit and run successfully down. If they move the runner, they'll get one point. If they first and third him, then they'll get two points. And so they're keeping track of points that way and competing. We'll run through those five guys. We'll have an established rotation two defense and then rotation two five hitters and then so on and so forth with extra guys in the cage. And those five will go through the same situation and then so on and so forth for group three. We'll usually do a hit and run. We'll do a move them over. We've interjected um, suicide squeeze We've done a uh, guy on third base, infield in, drive him in. Mm-hmm. Just any situation, we go, we've done slash, but you have to execute properly or you don't get points. Okay. And there's always a way, too, on the defense to get them involved to steal runs. Uh, a play of the day will, will give you additional points on your team to gain more points if you make a great defensive play. So it's great to see him compete through that. That's something to break the monotony of the practices where you're doing a time period of pfp situation ground balls and then hit you know you get into that every single day it gets old so to break the monotony and get the competitive juices flowing we'll do something like that we'll compete in hitting as well whether it's it's situation-based bp which you know you got a guy and it's same types of situations i've already mentioned but they're gaining points by executing in uh, regular rounds of bp or just hard hit balls counting hard hit balls but I can't understate how, again, it's not something I always did, having them compete as much in practice, but I feel like great assistants listening to them and being willing to take what they say and put it into practice has helped because we've injected a lot more competition into our practices. Perfect. And, you know, I'm listening to this and when do you get your your bullpens in? Because there, I don't know if there's a perfect time because inevitably you're going to have to take out their hitting or their indie work on defense and you know what what has been the best time for you guys to do that well we do it's funny because my pitching coach is a guy named brandon romney he played at byu he's a foreign language teacher 
at a teacher Spanish at Corona. And he, for many years, had seventh hour prep, which is our last hour of the day. So as our baseball players were in seventh hour baseball class, he was on his prep. So he could come out and throw some some uh, bullpens and get them out of the way because he could pull catchers out of there. He could pull pitchers out of there and run, uh, throw a few guys during that seventh hour. But he's lost that prep the last couple of years. So and he's had to teach a seventh hour. So we mostly adjusted to is. Since we do take live arm BP just about every single day, we even if it's a short round, mm-hmm. that's when he start. That's when he does bullpen. So as guys will rotate out into a shag position or into even a defensive, like taking live reps defensive position, he'll pull them in to be able to throw their bullpens during that time. Okay. Yeah, we really don't. We don't really don't have a tough a tough time finding time for bullpens the other thing is is i'm willing to if we do get cramped together too much or time isn't isn't there i am definitely willing for other position players to pick up the field work for guys that still need to throw pens at the end of practice right as we're working on the field he'll he'll close down with some bullpens at that time as well but that's usually where we do our bullpen stuff okay all right understand completely and the last one before we get into some quick hitter questions is so you, you've talked uh, several different times about how important communication is. And while we're on the end season, let's say that you get an email from a parent and they say, Coach Webb, I am really frustrated with the lack of my son's playing time this year. And how, you know, how would you respond? Or it, let's just say that done everything up to this point that you would usually do and you really haven't heard from this parent much at all. You haven't talked to the player at all in regards to them coming to you and asking you about this. So, you know, what would you, what advice would you do? Would you give? Because inevitably we all get this. We haven't spoken to the parent much at all. And then we haven't talked and the player hasn't come up to us and asked us about it uh, specifically. So what would you do in, in that situation? I think it starts with, if you have a dialogue with whoever your athletic director is at the time, I've been supported by all the athletic directors that I've had. I, I'm, Again, I'm I'm very very lucky at the moment. I have an ex college baseball player as my principal and my athletic director. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. yeah, and I make sure they know that my policy. And if if they wanted to change it, we'd have this talk. But my policy is, which is stated to parents in our Aztec Baseball 101 meeting, I don't talk playing time with parents. I'm going to spend time with kids. Every single day, I'm going to be watching them at practice. I'm going to be watching their interactions, their emotions, their schoolwork, everything. And I'm going to, you're going to have to trust me with my judgment on playing time. And if that doesn't suit you, maybe this school just isn't the best place for your son to play. And I'm very candid with that at the beginning of the year. But I, I give them a, a diagram of what it should look like. And to me, the, the diagram of what it should look like is a parent at home, if they are disgruntled with players playing time should tell the player to come and talk to me. It's so great for a kid to have to learn to communicate to an adult. It's part of growing up. It's part of becoming a man that they have to come to me. And I tell them, if your son comes to me in respect, I have no other, no ulterior motive behind this. If they come to me in respect, I will give them respect and I will try to give them the greatest answer to try to clear up any confusion, um, answer any questions that they have to the best of my ability. But it is a requirement in my program that players 
come and talk to me. Again, like you said, I try to get out in front of it uh, and prevent that, but it doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. And so I do have players that will come and talk to me and we'll have good dialogue. And I'll try to make sure that I, to the best of my ability, explain, you know, maybe what they need to do to get back in the lineup or to get into the lineup or how they can help the team. But I really don't have playing time conversations with parents. It took a while for parents to get used to that as I first started coaching. Mm-hmm. But now it it's kind of the way things work. I've had a couple of emails and I simply and respectfully respond to them that this was discussed at the at the meeting at the beginning of the year. Please have your son come talk to me. I like that. And that's kind of how I deal with playing time. Now, if it's something I also tell the parents, I'm not going to look the other way if if a coach is acting inappropriately or or other players there's something going on that is not not conducive to what our standards are, safety oriented, something safety oriented is going on. I, I'm more than willing to talk to a parent on those on those grounds. But when it comes to playing time, I just uh, I keep it between uh, myself and the players that are involved directly. Right, right, perfect. I, I love that answer. And so let's go ahead and jump right into the lightning style questions, and we'll just kind of roll from there. So. What advice do you have for any first-year head coaches who are listening to this or assistants who want to be head coaches someday? <laughs> well, you know, I think we all, as assistant coaches, we look at it and we say, we're going to change this, we're going to do this, we're going to do all these grandiose plans, but you got to stop yourself before day one and say, I need to do this and then maybe do some baby steps here and go slowly. Save the huge projects and huge fundraising for maybe your second or even third year. And instead, figure out, you know, the things I mentioned earlier, like what what is your culture? What do you really stand for? What are you going to build the foundation of your program on? It's not going to be, you know, something you do with the dugout or building a clubhouse or something you do with the actual field or uniforms. It's going to be your culture. That's what you're really going to build your program on and, and set those standards high, set them early in that first year. And you may go through a few headaches in the first couple of years, but your fine's gonna it's gonna pay off in the long run. And and that's that's what's gonna get you players that want to there are parents that want to be in that type of situation mm-hmm. and they and and you will start getting that type of player. I guarantee you. So in those first two years, you know, lay your foundation with that instead of doing those big fundraising things. Once you get to year three, four, start messing with uniforms and doing all that other stuff. But uh, you'll save a lot of headaches in the long run if you start with that. I like that. What's the latest thing learned that you're really excited about? I would say not immediately, but in the last couple of years, probably anything to do with the mental game, tapping into using Twitter a lot and uh, kind of getting on the same page with other coaches and seeing what they do on the mental side of the game. I've really focused about that. So anything mental is really, really important to me. Any new book that comes out that's recommended, I'm going to try to try to read because I love to read. I think I've become more in the last, again, I don't know if this is immediately like anything new that I've learned about, but over the last couple of years, I've really switched away from a lot of fundamental things. You know, we still do teach fundamentals, but more on the mental side. So anything that comes out mental, I'm really all in on in today's day and age to try to get them to master that because it's such a difficult game being a game of failure that anything give me mental, I'm going to love. I love that. Well, what's something besides cookies that you guys do in practice that your kids love? Uh, let's see. I think it's part of, Kids want to be recognized to a certain extent. I don't think they always need that, but they want to be recognized for 
living up to those standards and expectations you've set. Sure. Uh, we started a few years ago as part of our PT42 mentality. It started with a T-shirt, and now it's eclipsed to a hat. It's a, it's a hat with uh, our PT42 Shield logo on it. It's in camo. And we give that to what we call the warrior of the week, and we do it every week. And every Monday when we sit, we sit down in the dugout to kind of have a, here's the next week. Let's, you know, the, whether good or bad, let's flush the last week. Let's learn from it, you know, and let's move on to the next week. So we start the week by saying, before we move on, we want to celebrate who we dub as coaches as, and we vote for it as the warrior of the week. And the warrior of the week is someone who, it's not always the guy who had the most hits through the best on the hill. It's the guy who just lived up to our standards, the guy that worked the hardest on the field, the guy that was found cleaning up the dugout after a game, after everybody else had walked away, the guy that was constantly pulling for his teammates, the guy that did all the little things, all the standards and character-based stuff that we focused so much on throughout the last week. And we have a pedestal. We give him, now we give him this hat, and he wears that hat the whole week at practice and then gets to keep it. And I think it's a great motivational thing. It's a pretty cool hat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they become Warrior of the Week. And I think kids, kids love to be celebrated in that fact, especially if you set the tone that you're standards-based and you're a character-based program. And when they live up to it, to celebrate that, I think, is really important. Definitely. I love the celebrations. What is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? Oh, wow. That's usually the um, I just talked I to Steve. I, ta- I, I talked to, to Steve uh, Roof about this. We don't let our freshmen throw breaking pitches, and it's paid enormous dividends. I can speak to definitely Arizona baseball that Arizona hitters love fastballs, mm-hmm. and they cannot hit a changeup, no matter who they are. <laughs> I really honestly believe that. Mm-hmm. And as kids coming out of club baseball, again, I, I have a I have a son who is going to be a senior at Corona uh, this upcoming year. And as I watched club baseball, as he came through it, I just watched kids at 9, 10, 11, 12. All they threw was fastball break pitch. I mean, no one threw a changeup. And except for my kid, my kid threw a changeup a lot. And he had a lot of success. It wasn't a hard-throwing left-hander, but he got a lot of guys out throwing a changeup. And we talked to his coaches, and he, we decided that we were going to – you know, take it away from our, our freshmen, we were going to explain why we were going to take the breaking pitch away. And we did to parents. And our expl- explanation basically is, we're not afraid your kid's going to hurt his arm, but we're afraid that he's not going to learn this pitch that we are going to want to call on later in his career, junior and senior year, that pitch that seems to really get guys out, which is the changeup. And if you give a kid a choice as a freshman between a breaking pitch and a changeup, 90% of the time, they're going to throw a breaking pitch. And so we take it off the table. And we did it as an experiment one year, and it went unbelievably. And it has paid so many huge dividends. Starting their sophomore year, we start, again, working on all three or whatever pitches they throw starting in their sophomore year. But literally for that one spring season, that's all we ask, we throw the breaking pitch in in the toilet and we start throwing fastball change. We teach them how to spot a fastball and we teach them how to throw changeups and not every kid can throw a circle. So we, we mess with grips and we say which one's comfortable and whatever they come up with. And it has been wildly successful and it's led to kids that moving on each year realize how important a changeup is and getting, getting a team off your fastball. 
And by junior, senior year, it becomes really the pillar of most of our pitchers at Corona. We're kind of known for being able to throw effective change-ups. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Next question is, if we came to one of your practices, what would be three things that we would notice right away? Oh, three things. One, we love music. Okay. <laughs> we To the point where I convinced our athletic director to, uh, to get us a new sound system, and it's amazing, and I love it. I'm a big fan of music, especially country music, to the chagrin of some of our players. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're taking, if we're taking a BP, you know, some early BP, kids coming out of seventh hour, getting out there early and hitting, music's on. Uh, when we come out and we're starting out stretching, music's on. If we do some situational stuff where I want to break it down, we'll, we'll kick it off. But it's just creating a fun vibe. Baseball can be a slow game. It can be boring if you let it. That's what I tell our players. And so anything we can do to to make it more exciting out there at practice is warranted. It's something we want to do. And music is one of the one of the things we do, creating that uh, fun and positive vibe out on the field. Let's see, three things. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. We're meticulous about our bunts okay. in practice. Again, and it's paid dividends. I mean, not everything we've done, by the way, has paid dividends. Some things have failed. And we say, all right, put that in. That was a great idea. It looked like a great idea. It didn't work, pal. But being meticulous about their fundamentals on bunts, breaking the bunt down. I don't get consistent power, big kids in my program. So we got to play to their strengths. And a lot of times that means playing some small ball. I know some guy, I just saw a tweet the other day. It was a t-shirt that was talking about, you know, how bad bunting is and just hit dingers. And you know, that's great if you have the personnel to do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't always have that. It's kind of like we, we haven't had a 90 in my 15 years. We've had maybe one 90 plus guy. Every other guy is mostly low to mid 80s. Sure. So you got to adjust to that. And, and it's the same thing with bunting. And so uh, we're meticulous about it. And we try to make it a high percentage thing and teach it fundamentally and get them to really break it down. And you're going to see that we're very specific about the way that we teach bunting where they bunt to in certain situations and and how we do it, that would definitely stand out that we spend time doing that. Uh, What's the third thing? I guess that we're, we're meticulous too about our BPs that we're, we're very situation based that we hit to situations. I've talked to coaches recently that try to stay away from that. They think it makes kids think too much. But uh, again, for us, it's the way that we tend to score runs is that uh, we're, we're thinkers as hitters, but we're not overthinkers. We're not paralysis by analysis where you got too many things in your head that you, you know you have an approach up there that you go up there with that approach and you're trying to trying to execute a situation. And if you haven't done it in practice, I think it can be hard in game. So okay. maybe that's something too. I don't know if those are good ones, but those came to mind. No, it's individual to each person. And I just I like to get a glimpse inside of what what are three things that we would notice from each person's practice and hopefully I can steal a bunch of stuff. And then the finally, the final question for you is, what are your favorite books and resources? And you mentioned the mental game earlier. So if you don't mind, throw some of those out for our coaches. I loved, um, like, it's part of, part of what I talked about as baseball one and, and getting parents to understand as they come into your program that this is what club ball looks like. This is what high school baseball looks like. Here's a difference. You know, 18-man teams, 11-man teams, you know. Uh, extended seasons where you have ups and downs all year. You don't restart every weekend, right? One book that really hits on this was when Mike Matheny went back and had to coach club baseball. 
and had to deal with parents and club baseball after being in the big leagues for so long. And this was in between him playing and coaching. And in the Matheny Manifesto, he kind of talks about that. He talks about this is the difference between what happens in club and what happens as you ascend in baseball through different levels uh, to the highest level of baseball. And I, I thought it, it resonated with me because I talk about that. I see that as a big problem, trying to deal with the club dynamic versus high school dynamic. So that's a good one. I love the book Outliers, okay. which is also a phenomenal book, kind of kind of gets us to see if nothing else, where true talent comes from and to get kids to realize that. I have a book called Intangibles by Jeff Miller. It has, it's kind of your your standard mental game book, but it adds to it some inventories. I don't know if you're aware of that of that this book, mm-hmm. but you it has some accompanying materials that have inventories where they're like they're like quizzes you can give kids to test their mental aptitude of the game. Like you, it's just questions that ask us situations. Where should you be in this situation? Balls hit here, both on the offensive uh, pitching side, defensive side, it has all these inventories you can go through and actually use with your kids. Lone Survivor is another one. I make my coaches read Lone Survivor. Mm-hmm. I read it as a book before it became a, a movie and, and it's just amazing stories of, again, selflessness. Sure. And then lastly, I would say, I think on the, not on the book side, but resource side, we do a lot of Brian Kane. We're, we're fortunate enough to have our own clubhouse and I'll turn the lights off and we'll put a whiteboard at the front of the class or clubhouse and uh, we'll sit in there and we'll put on on our stereo system. We'll put on uh, Brian Kane's Automobile University okay. on hitting and we'll sit in there and with all the ideas, the, the kids will have a, a whiteboard marker and as ideas come up, they'll walk to the whiteboard and if we could use it, as something we want to use in our mental game, they'll write it on the whiteboard. And we just listen to the whole thing. And it really clicks. I didn't think it clicked as much as it did. And when we did our end of the year interviews, we said, what will we change for next year? What will we keep for next year? Multiple kids said, I loved that day we sat and listened to Brian Kane. Wow, okay. uh, it gave me great ideas. And then Ed Milet, motivational speaker, I recommend his podcast uh, where he goes back to Pacific University or University of Pacific, I guess it is, UOP, uh, where he played baseball and he talks to the UOP team about what he would have changed about his career at UOP. And it's great. We did that this year with our kids in our clubhouse and they loved it. Okay. So those are some resources. I love it. And David, I, I appreciate all the time that you've spent with us today. And you've given us a ton of great information that we can take and use tomorrow if if we want to, and and I think that you've done a phenomenal job of just encompassing everything that you guys are doing at Corona, and and I love it. But if our listeners want to get in touch with you and ask you anything specifically about anything that we covered today, or just get to know you personally, where can we find you online? In case anyone wants to get in touch, probably easiest place is on Twitter. My Twitter ham- handle is at SoulWebby1, and uh, Soul is S O L, as in like Corona del Sol. So it's at S-O-L-W-E-B-B-Y, and then the number one. Perfect. And I'm just going to open up the mic for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I think just going back to something you and I talked about most of this time was just focusing on making sure we're making men out of uh, these kids and these, these teenagers and that the culture program is everything. Make sure to protect it at all costs, that no one can ever be above your culture. And I'll leave you with a quote that I I say, just focus on, focus more on making good men than on whether or not you got the win.
And I guarantee you that will lead down the road to a lot more wins for you. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.